Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. In our last episode, we talked about live music and the Glastonbury Festival. And I was thinking about live recordings, live albums, and I went back and looked at our previous episodes, and we did an episode about live recordings. It was episode number 19. It was seven years ago. Wow. Now, one of the things about doing a long-running podcast, and I think we could say that this is a long-running podcast, is that you forget that you've covered certain topics, but you can rediscuss certain topics later because... Your opinion has changed. There have been new music, new artists, new issues, etc. Or you've completely forgotten what you talked about in that episode. <laughs> well, I haven't forgotten everything. I looked at the show notes. There are about two dozen links, and we're not going to link to a lot of stuff in this episode. We'll link back to the other one to talk about live recording. The reason I wanted to talk, though, is I recently got some new music. It's, as always, new Grateful Dead music. They have a new box set called Here Comes Sunshine. It's five recordings from May and June 1973. And, man, the band was hot. I wanted to ask you about that because they really do seem to be pushing those, um, at least on social media. Yeah. Now, this is the first box set, with the exception of 80s and 90s stuff, which I don't care for, that I have not bought since the very beginning because they've raised the shipping fees so much that shipping and duties would cost more than the box set. So I bought the downloads. You can buy the downloads in Apple Wasslers for $100 and in, I think, 24-bit FLAC for 130 something like that, compared to 190 for the box set. That's a lot of money to spend for music. It's almost 20 hours of music, though. Oh, well, I don't have a problem with that then. Fine. And plus, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you're a collector. You, this is, this is, exactly. you know, it's, I mean, exactly. I can understand the principle of the thing, not paying more for shipping than the actual object cost. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, yeah. you gotta have it. And this, like I said, even I know that this seems like a very interesting collection. It's an amazing period. It's post pig pen. I believe he died in March 73. It's got Keith and Donna Godshow who joined the band in what, 72 or late 71, early 72. And it's got all the stuff that they're coming out with in Wake of the Flood. And it's when the dead went from that 72 period of rock and space and jam to a more jazzy sound. But what's really amazing is that they've got this combination. And when you think about it, it's only five, six years, right, that they've been performing. And they've got this huge repertory of songs. June 10, 1973 concert is the longest concert they ever did. The recording is four hours and 41 minutes. Now, think about that for a second. Four hours and 41 minutes, that doesn't include the intermission. That doesn't include the time of them tuning. So the concert must have been getting on six hours. Not only that, this was an all-day festival. This was... Let's see, at the Robert F. Kennedy Stadium in Washington, D.C., not the Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Stadium. They don't have one of those. Opening for the Grateful Dead were Wet Willie and the Allman Brothers Band. Wow, what a summer show. And in the third set, Dickie Betts and Butch Trucks came on and jammed with the dead. Wow. Now, this has long been one of the tapes that tape collectors have wanted as their, you know, top 20 tapes. It's an extraordinary performance. But... 
It's just the sum of all this stuff. There's 20 hours of stuff from 1973 from a band. You want to say they were at their peak. 73 was a peak. 77 was another peak. Those who don't know Grateful Dead history, after October 1974, they took a hiatus of about 18 months. So it took them a while to build back up and to get to 76 and 77. But this is just, I mean, I, I keep looking back and this is 50-year-old music and it sounds so good. And it sounds so good. That's the thing. Because imagine how it sounded if you were there on the day. Well, sure. And, and you know, the other interesting thing is the fact that you can go back 50 years and find music that is still somewhat contemporary sounding. You know, my old thing about I would never listen to music that was older than I am. But now I'm getting to the point where <laughs> there's tons of music that is all, as old as I am almost. And it's still fascinating to listen to. And there's still plenty of stuff to mine from it. You know, you can still listen to um, any of these Grateful Dead recordings. I do occasionally. I'm not a big Dead fan, but I mean, I like throwing it on because it just there's so much interesting stuff going on. And um uh, and all of these live albums, you, you know, you said you want to talk about live albums. There's so much live stuff that was recorded that can be fixed and sound better now than it could have been mastered back then. You start to see a lot of this older stuff. No wonder that bands are releasing or at least their uh, their descendants are releasing recordings of bonus material that includes stuff you live stuff that you've never heard before because it can be cleaned up so well now. So it's it's tremendous. It's a good point. Digital technology is allowing for sorts of things that we couldn't have had back then. I'm kind of wondering, you, you ever, every once in a while you see on social media, someone shares an old video from the early 20th century, video, an old film clip from the early 20th century that has been cleaned up, converted to 4K, 60 frames per second. And this is using fancy AI tools, which examine each frame and the next frame and everything. It won't be long before they can do that to music. Well, right. I mean, why not? Let's do it. I think it'd be great. So how would we feel if we listened to Robert Johnson's 42 songs if they didn't have the scratches? <laughs> that, you know, that's interesting. Um, well, I think, hmm, I don't know. I, You know, the music is the music. So the recording quality of something like that recorded in the studio might I think we're kind of used to that. But if they dug up an old wire recording, let's say an old field recording, imagine if they found you know something by Alan Lomax, for instance, going out re recording a lot of folk and blues and traditional artists, and they clean that up. Now that would be something. But the stuff that's done in the studio, you know, I mean, I, if I heard Robert Johnson cleaned up, I might think, oh, that, that sounds pretty good. I might be more in awe of the technological uh, advancement than the actual music that he played, that he was documenting. The thing about live recordings, though, and this is what we said 17 years ago, seven years ago, is that they don't really present the live experience. They present the music that was performed live, but it's not the sound you heard. Unless it's classical music, where you know, you do get the sound of the room and that space is really important. In fact, it, it's reduced on a recording compared to what you hear live. When you go to see any amplified concert, any rock concert, particularly outdoors. I, I mean, the sound is like, you You have said recently, the sound is always bad. I remember Madison Square Garden concerts. It sounded really quite good. I remember concerts not too loud in the Palladium, Radio City Hall. It sounded okay. But of course, your expectations are different, right? When you go to a concert. 
Absolutely. Your, I mean, your memory of it is going to be, I mean, I, I've, I've seen Bowie twice. Now, I know it can't have sounded as good as the live recordings of the of the actual tours that I saw. It couldn't possibly have sounded that good. I go. In, I know we've talked about this in the past, but I mean, very simply, bass is going to have to be louder in order for it to travel anywhere. Otherwise, they wouldn't be hearing it 300 feet in the back. So, I mean, necessarily, the music is not going to sound the way it sounded in the studio. Conversely, and I thought about this later, when bands go in to record, they don't bring a PA system into the recording studio and play through the PA system. They play, you know, with individual mics and individual tracking, and it's done much with much more precision than it's, well, I shouldn't say precision, but it's done a little differently than it is when you mic a PA uh, for, a, for a band. So, I mean, that just tells me right there that, of course, they would never record with a PA in the same reason. And by the same token, the live album is not going to sound like the live experience. Exp so-called experience. The Grateful Dead's first album was a mixture of live and studio stuff, that they took some live recordings and played over them and did some mixing because they were a live band. And, you know, it's interesting. There are a lot of performers that release live albums who just aren't live performers, right? They're playing their songs exactly the same every single time, and it doesn't really sound that good. On the other hand, studio albums of bands who are live performers tend to not necessarily be as good. Or different. Well, they're different. The Grateful Dead, in particular, you compare their two 1970 albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty, which were acoustic with three-part harmonies, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash. And then they go out live. It sounds totally different. So yeah. at least they didn't try to reproduce the studio recording live or the live recording in the studio at that stage. A lot of performers do try to do that. I can think of several examples, and I may have mentioned this in the past, but 10 years after was a great live blues boogie band. But when they went into the studio, the producer said, look, fellas, we need a hit. We need we need something that's poppy. You can't keep recording all these old blues songs. It's not going to sell. So a lot of their ten, a lot of the 10 years after albums, if they're not live, and there are several of them, if they're not live, they have these awful sounding studio songs that sound like they just sat around in the studio and let's write a couple of songs and bang some lyrics together and there's our album and maybe we'll get a hit. Frank Zappa also records everything and usually takes live stuff and uses that as the basis for a studio recording. So a studio recording or a studio album is, is always going to be half and half or three quarters and a quarter. Who knows? It, sometimes it's stuff from one concert mixed with stuff from another concert. So it's, it's very interesting what they will do with it, especially when you're a live band, when people expect you to be improvisational, uh, more carefree and not so, why are you doing a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, solo, verse, chorus, chorus, chorus kind of song <laughs> when we know that you can, you can play for nine minutes at a time and be very interesting, but. Who wants to hear that on a studio recording? There are bands that thrive from the live experience that really can't perform in the studio. And right. it, it's a different type of music. And, and Grateful Dead started out playing, I think they played in this like lounge for a year, like 
four sets a night, you know, and they just they just honed their sound live in the very early days. It's like the Beatles in uh, Hamburg. Yeah, in Hamburg. Right. Exactly. Just playing and playing and playing because they had to. That's what they did. That was their job. Yeah. And of course, that's changed now. So anyone who's going to record a live album and do these people like Taylor Swift and Adele, do they record live albums? I, you know, I don't think so, because it would be pointless, wouldn't it? I mean, the spectacle yeah. is vis- is more visual. Yeah. I would think that and I, nothing against Taylor Swift or Adele. I, I think they're incredible, incredibly talented. But quite frankly, with the exception of one or two Adele songs, I don't think I could name any songs by either of them. But I, I think that they're awesome. But I don't think they would release a live album because it essentially would be the record played with noise, crowd noise in the background. There wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't, it's, it's the exact thing. When people go to see Taylor Swift, they want to hear the song the way it heard on the album. And they want to see her sing that song that way. Right. And it's very carefully choreographed because of the visuals, the lighting, the dancing, you can't improvise in something like that. I mean, singers don't improvise anyway. So that's probably not the best example. It, it's more, well, a piano player could improvise like Elton John, Billy Joel. I think pop stars can't improvise. Yeah. It's, it's not allowed. You can't do it. I mean, Elton John used to do it um, yeah. when he went out on concert. They would do a couple of songs that they could you know, riff on. But later on, when people want to hear what they know, you yeah. can't do that. You think back to the Rolling Stones that in the early days, they were a, a performing, a, a jobbing band playing over and over and over. And then they started recording hits. And... Their early live albums, you can tell that it's really, you know, it's live, it's raw. But then you go a few years, you go into the 80s, and the live albums are really just records of them performing someplace. There was one that they did with, was it four different concerts? One in a small club, one in the Olympion in Paris, holds about 3,000 people, one in an arena, and one in a stadium. It was called Four Something. Oh, um... Perhaps the one I'm familiar with is Love You Live, which came out, I think, in 77 or 78. And there's one side where they perform at the El Macombo Club, which is in Toronto. And they do they essentially do an old style Rolling Stones set. Um, they do some of the songs that they used to play in, in the early 60s. Chuck Berry number, a Muddy Waters song, that kind of thing. And if they do do anything like that now, it's all, it, as you say, choreographed. The lighting has to match. The cameras have to know where they're going. I mean, there's just a whole, it's a whole production. They can't, they can't improvise anymore. As I've said many times, they are the best Rolling Stones tribute band out there. One of the differences, though, is that they've made a number of videos in recent years. And see, this is where it becomes more interesting. Maybe Taylor Swift, you'd want a live video rather than a live album. Same with Adele. Same with the Rolling Stones, that they just keep turning them out every few years. That changes it because you're not there for the music. You're there for the entire experience without the louts behind you yelling and the crowd noise. And I promised myself just before we started recording that I wasn't going to bring this up, but I I always bring it up whenever we talk about live music. Why can't they stream it? Yep. And that's enough of that. But that's what you want to see it. You want to see. I mean, I get that people want to be in the same room with Taylor Swift. I kind of I guess I kind of get that. I guess I used to have that myself. I don't feel that way anymore. I don't want to be in the same room with Jethro Tull or David Bowie anymore. I couldn't care less. But I want to hear a good performance. But don't forget, when we were young, music was scarce. 
Well, that's, yeah, there's that. There's that aspect. It's a big it. difference. When Jethro Tull comes to town, it's like the only chance you're going to get to see Jethro Tull. There's no videos. There's no MTV. There's no streaming. It, it's a really rare occasion. So it's a very big difference that as we've gotten to streaming music and scarcity has disappeared, it doesn't mean that much anymore because you just a couple of clicks and you can listen to anything. I mean, that's another reason to why they should stream it. If they're worried about uh, pirating, who's going to pirate it if everybody's already seen it already? It's only the hardcore fans or stay-at-home people like me who would rather watch it on TV would pay for it. But I don't know. Yeah. Somebody will figure it out. There's probably... No, I don't want to... We talk about this all the time. I don't want to talk about it. 19th century technology. I love that. <laughs> but I still love live albums. I love live Grateful Dead albums because they're different enough... We talked about this years ago when Yes came out with a box set called Progeny. It was seven concerts that were done in 72 or 73 for the Yes songs right. Uh, album. Right. It was all the concerts, all the raw concerts that they used for Yes songs. Right. And there were fans on a forum who were talking about, yeah, the concerts are all the same, but the banter between the songs is different. Right. right. And, and it's like, sorry if there's a Yes guy listening and you bought it for the banter, but, you know, seriously? Yeah, I, I, you know, when you when you have when you go on tour, you're going to do the same thing every night. I mean, more or less, or at least you have a repertoire repertoire of songs that you can, you know, change the set list up a little bit. But you're not going to do anything that different ever anymore. You're just not going to get up on stage and say, "What do you want to do?" Like you can do at a small club or something. Which now that would be interesting. I'd love to see Taylor Swift with a very small band in a very small club. That would be interesting. Bob Dylan did a few shows in a club in Connecticut. I don't remember the name in the 1990s. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think there's some recordings online. And that was really different because it was trying to explore that, you know, the gaslight feeling, right? The roots feeling, 200 people in the club. It's a totally different experience. But that's more that the performers doing it, A, for themselves, B, as a marketing tool. Now, Dylan never released that, and a lot of fans would love for those tapes to be released. You can get bootlegs, but there's never been an official release. Maybe he didn't think it was good enough. In many cases, like the Rolling Stones, the four whatever, I'll link to it. I can't remember the four what that they called it. One of them was a very small club. I don't remember where it was, Toronto, Montreal, something like that. Two, three hundred people. Now, I did see a video of them doing a warm-up for, and it might have been for a recent tour. What was this video? It was just a few minutes. Them doing a warm-up in a small club. It might have been in a recording studio, a large room. There were a few hundred people in the room, and it, it just felt so wrong. I think it was the first thing they did after Charlie Watts died, because that's why the video circulated. It opened with Mick and Keith saying something about Charlie. And you could tell that they just didn't, they couldn't, deal with that proximity. They were used to playing for the people at the other end of the stadium, right? And these people real close, it's a different thing. It's a different style of performing. Yeah, that's, uh, plus it's, it's, it's the Rolling Stones without Charlie Watts. So that must've been jarring too. If yeah. that was like the first time, Yeah, because you know, you, you look behind you and you always expect to see Charlie there telling you where you are in a song. And yeah. If I can find it, I'll put a link in the show notes if anyone hasn't seen it. It was them kind of doing a warm-up. They did a couple of warm-up shows just to, you know, get ready to go back on tour. 
But yeah, live music. So the Grateful Dead, they did more than 30 songs in each one of these five concerts. And you think of a band like Yes around the same time. What did they have? A dozen? 15, 16 songs? Maybe. Might have been just as long, though, because they had... Well, no, actually, no, no, no. I'm wrong. No, No. they they did... 90 right, minute right. concerts they weren't long at all i mean they had a few long songs i'm thinking of yes songs and of course the whole concert couldn't have been as long as yes songs was it is that was that 90 minutes or two hours it's about 90 minutes and the is film it? is even shorter because yeah. there's one they they the film does not have the songs that are on the album not the same performances on the album and there's one song that's in on the album that's not in the film i think starship trooper but they didn't have a big repertoire and that was the case of a lot of bands at that time Oh, that's a good point, too. They didn't have a lot of stuff in 73, whatever. Yeah, whereas The Dead, four hours and 40 minutes, again, without the intermission and the tuning breaks, and The Dead did a lot of tuning. And the other thing uh, about The Dead and bands like them is they on the stage, they can say, hey, remember that song we did about seven years ago? Think we can still do it? And they do it. And they can yeah. make stuff up. They don't have to worry about whether the the camera guy is going to get the right angle or the dancers are going to be in the right position or anything like that. They just do it. And that's what's great about a jazz or a folk or a rock band that can that can do that kind of thing. On the other hand, I'm not sure that a stadium, well, Grateful Dead, one of the few stadium bands that could probably pull that off, unless you're a jam band or something and you expect that sort of thing. Yeah, this was 73. This was probably the earliest that the Dead was doing stadiums. I think they were doing... Smaller stadiums in 72, but this is probably the biggest concert for them, at the, barring Watkins Glen and Woodstock and, you know, festivals, which were bigger than that. But it is, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting to look back at that and see how different music was back then than it is now. And because we're old. Yeah. Um, we're old. If anyone listening has been listening since episode 19, when we first talked about live albums, do drop us a line because <laughs> I'd be curious to see if anyone stuck with us for that long. You can remind us that what we talked about in that yes, episode. Maybe. Well, you can actually re-listen to that episode. I'll put a link oh, in the show Oh, that's right. Notes. I could listen to it. I could yes, listen to it again, could. couldn't I? I, I probably actually to. have the raw recording here in my do, home Do you somewhere. keep all of those? Yeah. Really? I back, I back everything up, yeah. That's interesting, because I was thinking that we could go back and remaster some of them. Um, I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> do that. Um, yeah, I used to have it from radio days where you save everything because you never know if a client is going to come back two years later and say, remember the commercial we did two years ago? And you don't want to not have it. Mm. So we used to put everything to tape and then later on everything to disc and then digits. It's all digital. Well, my next track pick is obviously going to be Here Comes Sunshine, five Grateful Dead concerts, 100 bucks for the Apple Lossless, 19 hours and 47 minutes. I mean, come on. That's five bucks an hour, right? That's not much. And you can listen to them over and over. You don't have to just listen once. And it's yours. You don't have to pay your streaming subscription. Really good. Uh, you know, all the the big tunes that the Dead is known for, Truckin', Dark Star, the other one, He's Gone, Wharf Rat, Not Fade Away, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad, Eyes of the World, one of my favorite songs, China Cat, Sunflower, I Know You Writer, everything's there. Playing in the band, here's a 23-minute version. And, you know, when you're a Dead fan, you see that, it's like, yeah, 23 minutes of that. Or, or the 61073, the one with the Owen Brothers guys, where they do, let's see, Dark Star, He's Gone, Warfrat, Truckin', 
or even, let's see, 6973, also at the RFK Stadium, he's gone 14 minutes followed by 12 minutes of trucking and 23 minutes of playing in the band. And you just love those jam sandwiches that the Grateful Dead does. All right, Doug, do you have an next track pick? I hope if you do, it's a live album. I do. It is a live album. As I mentioned, Frank Zappa pretty much recorded everything. I mean, whether it was a, a show was on two track or four track or eight track, whatever was available, he generally recorded everything and then went to the studio and sweetened it up. But there was a collection of his stuff that was released in the late 80s called You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore. And there are six volumes of, of this uh, edition, and I have a couple of them. And my favorite one, and the one I'm going to recommend right now, is Volume 2, the Helsinki Concert. This was a, a concert that the Mothers gave. It's a great lineup of the Mothers. It's got Ruth Underwood, Tom Fowler on bass. It's got Chester Thompson, George Duke, uh, Napoleon Murphy, Brock, and Frank. And it's just a small, tight unit. Now, they're playing in Helsinki, and unfortunately... Napoleon Murphy Brock, who is the lead singer and sax player, has the flu, and I believe he also has some food poisoning. And they also had some adventures in the hotel, and all of that comes through during the show. Frank would frequently tell stories about what the band had been going through the past few days and just work it into the show. They'd change lyrics and all kinds of things. This album is also the first time that Frank ever heard of the song Whipping Post. Someone requested that they play it. He later learned it, though. It's on another album. He actually did a, a straight version of uh, Elman Brothers' Whipping Post. But anyway, this is a great, fun album. It sounds like a raw road tape. It's not that cleaned up. It's got warts and all, but it's a really great performance. The Helsinki Concert, Volume 2 of You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore by Frank Zappa is my next track. This was episode number 260 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website, where you'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Don't forget, you can support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We are ad-free. We are self-sustaining. So listener support is what keeps us going, and we appreciate it. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.